Seattle, Washington, D.C. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Before I get into, I got a couple of topics I'm going to talk about today, but before I get into it, let me remind people that WPFW is listener supported radio. We count on your contributions to our station to support the programming, to support. Uh, to support our station. So I ask you to go to the pledge line. I ask you to go to 202-588-9739 and make a contribution to WPFW in the name of Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Uh, or you can go online. You can go to WPFWFM.org and you can follow the prompts there to make a contribution to the station as well. All right. Hey, I am flying so- solo today. No, no Regan with me again this week. Um, but I do want to, I, I do have a couple of things that are, they're, they're really topical and really timely that I want to talk about. So, uh, let me get right into it. First, look, we are all once again, you know, not just saddened, but outraged by the mass shootings that have taken place in both, uh, you know, Georgia and, in, uh, in Colorado. But in, in the wake of the, the murders in, in Georgia in particular, there was a a lot of media coverage about stopping the Asian hate, you know, stopping the hate against Asians. And while well, I agree with that sentiment and, and I'm not suggesting there shouldn't be an effort to address some of the, the racism that, that Asian people have experienced in the United States, just like I would not undermine the black Live, uh, lives matter movement. I do want to have a bigger conversation because let's be clear. These murders that took place in Georgia uh, are more about white male supremacy than specifically about Asian hate. Now, now these specific murders obviously were targeting uh, the, these, you know, Asian um, businesses. But the underlying problem is, is white male supremacy, white male supremacy, because along with that white male supremacy comes a history of a rape culture that, you know, that dates back to the, you know, even before colonialism, Columbus's men were rapists. I mean, they, they there's, there's accounts in Columbus's journals and some, uh, some of the other contemporary writings about native women that were given as payment to Columbus's men. And I no take it back. Not native women, native girls who were given as payment, who were beaten into submission so they uh, so they could be their, their uh, you know satisfy some sexual appetite and it's not even sexual appetite because let's be clear much of the violence against women is not about sex it's it's about violence it's about domination and you know and of course this 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 notion of of white male supremacy is not only the legacy of of colonialism but but slavery as well I mean, you know, people always want to gloss over the, you know, the fact that Thomas Jefferson was having children with his slaves. And, and he wasn't alone. This was a common practice. This whole idea that, uh, you know, that white men, in spite of their, you know, their, their racism, or actually, actually, I take it back, not in spite of their racism, in keeping with their racism, viewed women of other ethnicities and or perceived races as something that they could just take. And, and by take, I obviously I mean rape, but, but among other things. So this white male supremacy is really the underlying problem. And, you know, and as a native person, 
you know that I've talked about missing and murdered indigenous women. That is a direct result of white male supremacy. 70% of the violence that is committed against native women, domestic violence, is, is by white men. I mean, that's just, that's just the, the statistics. Now, I'm not suggesting that the 30% that, that happened at the hands of native men is, is, is somehow you know, less offensive. It's absolutely as offensive. But it's also a learned behavior because of the white dominant culture around us. So I, as much as I, I want to support any effort to, to mitigate and, or to do away with or, or confront racism, whether it's racism against you know, a black people or Asian people or native people, as much as I, I feel strongly about that, it isn't a, an Asian problem. It isn't a black problem. It's a white man problem. And so we have to come back to that. And, and, we, and, we, and we have to continue to come back to that. Because anytime you start attributing this to, uh, you know, that, that somehow the victims of this violence have some responsibility. Is it because we're too pretty or we're too sexy? No, it isn't any of that stuff. So I, I think it's really, really important that we, that we dial some of this back and confront what the real problem is. That it, again, that, it, that it's white supremacy, male white supremacy. And look, the, the impacts of male white supremacy go in every possible direction. Not only does it objectify women, women of color in particular, but it, but it also creates you know, the, this hostile environment. Look, you had the storming of the Capitol. Again, white men predominantly. This is, this is what is the underlying problem in the United States. And I don't know what the solution is. You know, we, we talk about anti-racism. No, it's not enough to say that you're not a racist. If you're not, com if you're not confronting racism, then, then you are essentially complicit in it. And by uh, even this conversation in the aftermath of what took place in Georgia, by, by constantly dwelling on, you know, there has to be you know, an effort to stop Asian hate. It isn't just Asian hate. It, it isn't. I don't even know. Look, murder is, is a hate crime. There's no question about that. It, I mean, it, it is a, a, a hate crime when you murder somebody sp specifically of a different ethnicity or background or, or belief system or whatever. There, there's no question to me that that's a, that's a hate crime. It's not a crime of passion. <laughs> and in fact, rape is not a crime of passion. Rape is a, is a crime of hate. It is, it is a crime of loathing. It is a crime of, 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 of power. And most of the time, that power is actually driven by an insecurity. You know, this, again, this, this line of white supremacy to, you know, to white privilege, to white fragility, it, that's what, where it's connected to. Because, look, you look at the, um, at the guy who's, who's responsible for those murders in Georgia, I don't know anybody who could look at that guy and say, oh, yeah, there's a model of, of, of dominance and white supremacy. I mean, there's nothing supreme about that guy's uh, you know, physical appearance. Obviously, his mental capacity is, some, is somewhat challenged. There is no um, superiority that could be associated with this guy. This is a guy who is, who is, is, is diminished mentally. He has you know, some, some huge inferiority issues 
you know, not just a complex, but but he probably is somewhat d- deficient physically, mentally, uh, and, you know, and any number of <laughs> number of ways. So this is where, again, although it's we have to confront it as a male white supremacy issue, we also have to acknowledge that the most dangerous white supremacists are the ones who are feeling fragile. Because now they have to act out on their fears and their insecurities. And, that, and that's what you're seeing in this stuff. So, you know, I, that's what I wanted to, to discuss. I wanted to open up the show with this because I know there's a look, I, I listen to public radio. I watch television and I, you know, I see all this stuff online. And it, the constant drumbeat was, you know, this debate over whether there was whether sexual addiction is even a real thing or not. You know, we can have that debate. But the, but the reality is, it isn't just this crime. It is the objectification of women and the ob- objectification of not just, not just women, but, but people of the oppressed uh, that are they're among the oppressed people. Look, I, I talk about the mascot issue all the time. I, I, I spoke at a, at a high school where I, I drew that connection between the objectification of Native people specifically, and then narrow it down, narrowing it down to the objectification of, of Native women. I mean, Pocahontas, it, it, although the, the, the previous president you know, found it humorous to joke and, and use her name as, as some sort of slur against Elizabeth Warren or whoever, she was, she was raped. She was kidnapped. She was objectified. And, 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 and so what do you, when you say objectified, what do you mean? And I don't mean just by the, the British colonists. She continues to be objectified by, by Disney. The whole narrative that, you know, that this very successful you know, animated cartoon creates, suggesting that, you know, you know, that there was some sort of romance between you know, John Smith and, and Paul Grant. Of course, that's not even remotely true. The story of Pocahontas has almost nothing to do with John Smith. It has to do with John Rolfe, who was her captor, who essentially, you know, you know, through repeat, you know, again through through kidnapped and uh, being kidnapped and isolation, you know, brainwashed her, married her. She and then she then she died. She she had a child and and, she, and then she died at the hands of her captors because of disease. After she was paraded around as this as this token, as this objectified native woman, that's exactly what what the what the Pocahontas story is. And for anybody to tell otherwise, Disney or anybody else, is is just a it's just an outright lie. But see, that is the lie that white people want to hear. And and that and that is the lie that continues to pepper, perpetuate white male. Uh, male dominance, white male supremacy. And that's, that's what is the underlying problem. And of course, we all can get into a little bit of that, you know, uh, of that game on trying to narrow it down farther than that. And I'm not, look, I, I am not attempting to, to in any way to take over or appropriate the, the current conversation over um, what Asian folks are uh, experiencing in terms of racism, um, you know, and, and, and their interaction with white, uh, with white supremacy. But 
it, just like I would not change, you know, alter the name of Black Lives Matter and say, well, Native Lives Matter too. No, I didn't need to do that either. But we should point out that what was what was revealed in in those murders in in Atlanta last week was really about white male supremacy, and you know, and the and the fact that that he would even try to claim. You know, to to the white male cops that were uh, you know that were interviewing him, oh, that this wasn't about race. No, it it isn't about race. It's about you. It's about your belief and, and your acting out to preserve you know this systemic favoritism that goes to uh, to white male supremacy. And you and you heard it even in the cops' com- com- He he said he had a bad day. He didn't suggest that the that the the people who died at his hands had a bad day. He said this guy did. Look, I don't know how to um you know say it any more clearly, but I I think it's really important that while we address much of this issue, I don't think we we should exacerbate the issue <clears throat> by somehow itemizing the victims of white male supremacy and almost create a little bit of tension amongst the oppressed people. Cause you know, one of the things I started seeing is, well, what about the black Asian relationship? What about the, uh, the relationship between, you know, this group and that group and, and, and everybody, you know, it turns into this, what, what some people call the oppression Olympics. Like there's a competition for who's been mistreated the most. The one commonality that we all have is white supremacy and male white supremacy at that. So that's the conversation that we need to have, folks. That's the conversation we need to have. And that is what needs to be pushed back upon. And we need to push back upon it on uh, in the media. We need to push back uh, against it in in terms of entertainment, in in terms of in terms of music, uh, you know, whatever whatever it is that that influences you. We need to confront white supremacy. And we certainly need to confront it at, with, with police departments. We need to confront it with, with uh, you know, state houses, with, uh, you know, with Congress, with, with you know, with uh, state and federal governments. Because that's where this white supremacy becomes embedded and, and, and accommodated in the systems. And, and I'll tell you, we really need to confront it with the media. Because shame on the media. Uh, you you get a, you get a half a dozen uh, Asian people murdered by a white male white supremacist, and and you don't address that. You you address this. Uh, you know, oh yeah, there's a climate. There's a bad climate against Asian people. Yeah, there is. There's a bad climate against anybody who's not white in the United States. So that's really the conversation that needs to be had. So I, I really wanted to get this off my chest. And again, I am not trying to co-opt or appropriate you know, somebody else's tragedy. I'm not. I'm just saying that if we want to confront, we can't confront what took place in Georgia as simply confronting, you know, look, I even heard some people try to turn this into a sex worker conversation. It isn't about a sex worker conversation. This isn't a sex worker conversation. This isn't about massage parlors. This is about white supremacy, male white supremacy. So, that's that's one of the messages that I really wanted to, wanted to get out there, and it's it's something that I felt 
need to be said and needs to be said strongly. Um, I only wish that I had, had uh, Regan to join me on, in this conversation, and, and and perhaps we'll revisit this uh, uh, next week with the pro with our program when when Regan can join me again. Um, okay, so what's the other topic? <laughs> well, here's the other issue that I that I really need to talk about, and. There has been a bit of a backlash, believe it or not. There's been a backlash um, against Native people over the 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 COVID stimulus package. Yeah, and if you don't know this, let me explain, and, and then you'll you'll understand a little bit more. So, in the COVID COVID stimulus package, there by some estimates, I'm, I'm hearing 31 billion dollars is being. Um, um, segregated i guess or, or separated for to go towards native territories now the, the the vast majority of that those dollars are to address the deficiencies in health care but the, the rest are, are meant to, uh, to address the deficiencies in uh, education and in and infrastructure as it relates to sometimes health care and education so it's 31 billion dollars and and it's being touted as the largest single um uh aid package going to Indian country in the history of the United States. Well, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll let's, let's confront that right there. For, for one thing, the gross underfunding of obligations now, not donations, not charity, not welfare, but the gross underfunding of obligations by the federal government to Native territories makes this $31 billion pale by comparison. We are talking about a legacy of underfunding that goes back over a century. No, so what, what do you mean underfunding? Well, to be clear, every square foot of US of, of soil claimed by the US was was land that native people occupied. And our ability to to even occupy, to live on that land was uh, was stolen. So without getting into the whole thing about title and who owns the land, but but our right to even occupy the lands that of our ancestors, not own necessarily, but occupy, was was taken. It was taken by fraud. It was taken by so-called treaties. In in the Mohawk language, one of the words that we use for the word treaty literally translates to "we give up our land." Because that's what every one of those treaties was about. It was about creating an environment where, the, where more and more white people were taking our lands. And oftentimes that, there was supposed to be some sort of compensation. The compensation on its face was always very, very limited and, and, and ridiculously low. But the overall commitment made at, at, at the state and federal levels had to do with, with being provided adequate health care and i mean adequate i, I mean health care not just you know a band-aid here but health care being provided um the means to sustain ourselves because that was being taken away with the land our means of, of sustenance came from from you know the the lands that we occupied so whether it was lands that we hunted or gathered or planted that's what was that that's what was being taken the most valuable lands that the United States targeted in the, in the first place were lands that, that we were thriving on. 
And in fact, that's why they were targeted, because we were living good lives. Well, then if they're living good lives, it must be because the land is rich. Well, so let's take it away. And we were removed. We were either removed completely off the lands that we occupied or under the, the smallest parcels of land within our Aboriginal territories to essentially to be sent to die. Yeah, because along with being limited in those spaces, in spite of the promises made for health, education, and welfare, and these kinds of things, the real intent was to make our lives miserable on the lands that we retained. So we would leave them. And ultimately, those lands could be, uh, it could be annexed or acquired as well. Unfortunately, for the United States, that plan never worked out. And, and I've listened to politicians for many, many years rail against the, quote, failures of the reservation system. Well, the reservation system was never meant to be a success. The failure is that we didn't leave those, t that, that, we, that we maintained them, that we kept our lands. That's the failure. The failure of the reservation system isn't that we were saddled with, you know, somehow mysteriously saddled with poverty. No, that was the plan. The plan was to create an environment that would make our homelands undesirable to live in. And you were successful at that. But in spite of the fact that we were that we had policy-driven imposed poverty on our lands, we still we we still maintained our connection to our lands. However, you know, however that perception might have been to you, we still love the lands that we that we are associated with. And so what may very well be a a very difficult life to live on these lands that were where poverty was a part of the plan, we still maintain it. So we didn't leave. We didn't just go to reservations to die. We didn't just go to reservations to, to live out a miserable existence until all of our people left. And look, we do lose people every day. We lose people to suicide. We lose, lose people to the, the, high, the, the lowest life expectancy. And we, we lose people to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, two spirits. But we also lose a large amount of our population to people who just say, no, I can't take it anymore. I can't live here. I've got to go live in the city. I've got to, I've got to go find a life out there because there's no life left for me here. So, and the reason that that exists that way is because of the failure of the United States to, to properly and well, to, well, to properly uh, fulfill its obligation because we weren't supposed to die, have the lowest, you know, um, life expectancy. Healthcare was supposed to be provided. We, to the extent that that we were sometimes put in places where that were not very fertile lands for growing, we were supposed to be provided some food. Now, I'm not saying I'm I'm crazy about this idea, the idea that we were supposed to sit on a territory and wait for the the federal government to fulfill, fulfill its obligation. But that was the the obligation. And it was never met. And oftentimes, to the extent when, even when there was compensation involved, specific you know, financial compensation, by the time that those monies would come, it, would, it wouldn't even be the people who were the initial, uh, the, the original victims of this removal or forced onto reservations. I mean, no, it wasn't, it wasn't even that. So, again, to, to put this $31 billion in this stimulus package in per, into perspective, 
Look, Native people have died at the highest rate of any other people in the United States as it relates to COVID-19. But you know what? We're also dying at, a, at the highest rate for diabetes, for, uh, for any number of, of ailments that were caused by, you know, you know, by the lives we were forced to live on our territories. We, in some places like Pine Ridge, unemployment was in excess of 85%. I know that doesn't make sense to you. Because you're used to hearing numbers that like are at 7% or, or in worst case scenario, 10% unemployment rate. Most of those numbers are meaningless. But in, in Pine Ridge and many other territories, the unemployment rate, the rate of unemployment is so high that you are the exception to the rule to have a job. Why? Because, because economic development was crushed by US, U.S. and state policies in most Native territories. We are in, in, in a constant battle with states. Even here in Seneca Territory, we're fighting New York State every day over taxation. We're fighting New York State over every day over them trying to extort money out of Native gaming. We're in a constant battle with New York State. And again, a Democrat in the governor's mansion, not, not a Republican. For those of you who think this, that racism is just a right thing, no, it's, it's a white thing, getting back to the previous conversation. We, we experience racism at the hands of Democrats every bit as much as we experience at the hands of, uh, of, of Republicans. It may not seem or, or, or look as overt. I mean, Democrats don't, don't bear racism as a hallmark of their, uh, uh, you know, of their platform like, like Republicans do. And yes, you do. But it doesn't mean that, mean that racism isn't there. It absolutely is there. So... When I see their, their, some attempt in, in this current piece of uh, you know, legislation associated with the stimulus package to create um, a, a, a larger uh, package going to Native territories than we've ever seen in a single, in, in a, in a single you know, tranche, we need to be clear that this doesn't even backfill the deficiencies of over a century of underfunding. We died at the highest rate in COVID. We died at the highest rate of, of, of many diseases, including cancer clusters caused by uh, the remnants of extractive industries, extraction of things like uranium. I mean, even, even here in Seneca Territory, we've, we've got a nuclear storage facility up, you know, upriver from us that, that is allowing radiation to flow in, on the river that, you know, that traverses our, our, you know, our, our entire territory here. So we have cancer clusters. We have diabetes. And we have so many things. And, and much of the, the ailments that we have are attributed to the massive shift in our lifestyles due to relocation or removal due to, again, all these policies that, that have imposed this, this abject poverty in our territories. You know, and, and, and so the idea that we don't have a real good um, system or prospect for the, for the future, all of that is, is, is attributed, you know, attributes to our high unemployment, our lower life expectancies, our substance abuse, suicides, missing and murdered indigenous women, all of that. So when I hear anybody, and, and here's, and just to be clear, here is what I heard. I heard 
some folks, especially in the black community, mind you, suggesting that Native people got pushed to the front of the lines, uh, front of the reparation line. They're actually looking at this $31 billion as some sort of reparations that Native people, this isn't reparations. This is obligation. Because every square foot of your land came from us. Or, or came from us being removed from our lands. So when I hear anybody, and, and it really does, I mean, it really does bother me to, to think other oppressed people are viewing this as somehow Native people being pushed to the front of the line um, on, a, on a reparations conversa conversation, because it's not that. This is not even, again, it doesn't even represent backfill. This $31 billion is a drop in a leaking bucket. A bucket of, uh, you know, where resources are still being pulled off our territories and we are underfunded. There was a recent settlement because of the, the uranium, the underpayment for uranium that was pulled off of Native territories. Uh, and, and that was a recent settlement from a couple of years ago. But we have been screwed even as we were, we were displaced from our homelands, pushed onto these, onto these native territories. We were screwed at a level, and I'm going to talk about this in the, in the second half. I mean, you know, this is what I'm going to get into next. We weren't just screwed because of the underfunding of health and education and, and housing. We weren't just screwed in that regard. We literally had resources taken from us. And I'll explain. There was a lawsuit called the Cobell suit. It was Eloise Cobell who launched a lawsuit against the Interior Department and the Treasury Department. Her lawsuit alleged that one of that over $150 billion, $150 billion, not $30 billion, but a hundred over $150 billion worth of native assets are essentially unaccounted for. That they were lost. They were stolen. They were misappropriated. They were, they were just not accounted for. And it isn't even just the dollar value. I mean, and, and, and when I talk about this, we're talking about income, lease income from grazing, from timber, from, from uh, oil, from the extractive industries. This is money that should have gone to Native people that the Interior Department took ownership of in their so-called trust responsibility. And then not only did they take this money that often came, came at pennies on the dollar for, you know, if they were to come from any place else. So they would take this money and then lose it. And, and I mean lose it literally sometimes with bad investments because they were investing on our behalf. So in bad investments or just sheer incompetence and theft. The Justice Department hired Arthur Anderson, which, which before Enron was considered one of the most premier accounting agencies in, uh, in the United States. And Arthur Anderson went in to investigate this. And, and after several million dollars worth of audits and you know, forensic analysis, decided that it was the, the level of incompetence was so much and so vast that it was impossible for the, the Interior Department to, you know, to provide information. You know, look, there were shredded documents. There was destroyed documents. There was burnt documents. There was missing documents. And, of course, even things like who owned what lands 
whose name should go on on certain uh, should be attributed to to tracts of land was was missing. So native people do, couldn't even know whose family ha, ha, should have ownership to the land that was that was producing oil revenue. I mean, it, it was that level of. And Arthur Anderson said, "There's no way to account for this. You just need to pay 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 this off." This, this suit was initiated in, like, 1996. During the Bush administration, they were coming around to figures, you know, that were certainly not $150 billion, but they were, they were contemplating re- working towards a settlement that would have been, ironically, <laughs> close to the same amount of money that just came in the stimulus package, $30, $30 billion dollars. That's the number that the Bush administration was floating around. And, of course, this was rejected out of hand, I think, by both Democrats and Republicans. And if you don't believe me that it was rejected by Democrats, well, let's talk about how this thing really ended up settling. Because it was during the Obama administration that a settlement was reached. And that settlement, no, it wasn't $30 billion. It was $3.4 billion. Essentially, 10 cents on the dollar compared to what the Bush administration was contemplating. $3.4 billion. And, and let's be clear, $3.4 billion didn't go to, go to the, the, um, the, the plaintiffs in this case, which, you know, were as many, which could be as many as a half a, you know, half a million um, Native people. No. Only $1.4 billion went into checks that went out. And those checks were conditional. Because if you were a Native person who was considered part of this class action suit, you had to sign off that you would not pursue any further claims against the Interior Department for this massive loss of, of, of revenue and, uh, and resources and um, an asset. So you had to sign, and then you would get a $1,600 check. A $1,600 check. And, and you had to sign off on, on any future claims. So that's where $1.6 billion went. The other $2 billion, it actually went to purchasing land back, which shouldn't have even been necessary. Part of the lands that they were purchasing back was, was what was lost due to the incompetence of the Interior Department. The you know, land titles, deeds, all that stuff, it was all completely mismanaged. This shouldn't have required a settlement to buy it back. So, again, I said Obama. Let's be clear. This was the Obama-Biden administration that settled this massive lawsuit. Again, this wasn't a lawsuit for underfunding health. This wasn't a lawsuit for underfunding, um, you know, uh, you know, food or, or poverty or housing or welfare. No, it wasn't a, a lawsuit. It, this was a, a lawsuit for theft, for, 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 the, for losing $150 billion worth of Native assets and resources. So, yeah, no, you still lost $150 billion. Of, of, and, and you know what? The Interior Department, they, only had, they were only being held accountable for, and the Treasury Department were only being held accountable for, for 3.4. <laughs> and, and the crazy part is 
again, $3.4 billion. The $2 billion that was going to land to reacquire lost land, that doesn't go to native people. That went back to white people. So, so more than half of that $3.4 billion went back to the white folks. They were, they were being compensated for having to return the land that they stole. So I'm sorry. Again, I, I'm sorry. If, if any of you are, are somehow railing against Native people because, because $31 billion was included in the stimulus package, for one thing, I am neither jumping for joy over this thing, nor am I, am, am I going to accept anybody attributing this as some sort of reparations. It isn't. Deb Hallen being appointed to the Interior Department is not a gift to us. This three point or, or this thirty-one billion dollars in the stimulus package doesn't even backfill the deficiencies in funding, and it sure as hell never addressed the fact that the Obama uh, Biden administration screwed Native people out of over a hundred billion dollars with their three point four billion dollars settlement of the Gobel suit with over half of it going right back to paying white people so, so Native people could have some of their land back. It, it is such a travesty. And look, I get it. I think there should be an effort to address reparations for slavery. I think there should be an effort to address reparations for Japanese internment. I think there should be an effort to address reparations for much of what Native people experience, including residential schools, including these, these, these massacres and these murders and, 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 the, and the failure of the United States to, to ever properly compensate Native people for the lands that, uh, that were stolen from them. But none of this is that. And you know what? Shame on any of us if we begrudge the Japanese Americans for, for getting reparations, or if we begrudge the, you know, the descendants of African slaves for, uh, for reparations. But shame on you if you're going to condemn us too. I mean, it goes back to my original conversation. The problem isn't native. The problem isn't black. The problem isn't Asian or Japanese or Chinese. The problem is white supremacy. I don't, you know, look, I don't, I don't have a, I don't do a whole lot of talking about reparations for native people. And part of the thing is I'm more concerned about the things we're fighting for today than the things that we're fighting for in the past. We have to, we have to battle states. As, as I said, we're, we're fighting states every single day over taxation. And to be clear, when I say taxation, we're fighting the states over their control over our territories. That's what we're talking about with taxation. I mean, many non-Native people think that na every Native person gets a government check. For one, to the extent that Native people do get any type of compensation, it is owed compensation. And it's grossly underfunded. I mean, part of the Cabell suit was based on what was supposed to fund these individual Indian monies accounts. Those, that was supposed to be revenue that Native people were supposed to be getting from the, from the leases on their lands. 
the oil leases, the timber leases, the water leases, the grazing leases, all of that stuff. And most of it was pathetically low. That's what the Cobell suit was based on. So for any of you who think that somehow we are a burden to the, uh, to the taxpayers of the United States, well, where the freak do you think you're living? What, who do you think occupied the land before you did? Where do you think your income is being generated from? So, yeah, I'm a little pissed off when I, when I, when I first started hearing this backlash over this $31 billion. And you know what? Here's the sad part is much of that $31 billion <laughs> is going to be lost in the bureaucracy of it all. I mean, a large portion of it's going to go through, uh, go to, to, to shore up the grossly underfunded healthcare systems that exist on our territories. Some of it'll, you know, probably go, you know, look, the, the cuts in funding to the Indian Health Services, again, which is an obligation by the federal government, have been so significant. And they weren't just cuts that happened during the, the Trump administration, it's happened through every administration. So, this, the, these dollars, which are really to address the inadequacies of, the, of U.S. policy towards Native people, is probably not going to fix. I mean, I heard some Native people say, well, this is, could be a game changer. Look, is it going to have impact? Sure. And, you know, maybe our clinics will um, be upgraded. Maybe we will, we will see an increase in, um, in the health care that we are, are, we are provided on our own territories. But some of this is, has gone to the fact that we have received inadequate health care. And, and, you know, all, the, all of the state-of-the-art medicine and technology associated with, with health care in the United States, it doesn't come to our territories. We are getting the, 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 the most backwards um, uh, technology uh, available that, that comes to our territories. And I'm not saying all territories are the same, but for the most part, we are getting, you know, terrible support from the from the federal government for for healthcare. Our housing is incredibly deficient. Our the food deserts that exist in our territories, the water quality, the worst drinking water in the United States isn't Flint, Michigan. It's it's by and large almost any native territory in the United States. And, and the same thing can be said on the Canadian side as well. The basic access to clean water. That's been one of the things that people attributed to the, uh, the, the large number of deaths in, in Navajo territory. Just a basic lack of drinking water. So you're going to tell me that $31 billion is, is, is an award? It's a gift? It's addressing the deficiencies. <clears throat> Education. Look, during this lockdown period, most of you don't realize, even as I'm broadcasting and, and, and recording and, and do, doing my show here, I don't have internet access here. I, I have to use a, a, um, a Verizon MiFi jetpack for my internet. Why? Because we don't have fiber optic cables going through our territories. We don't have broadband here. I mean, and, and this isn't just something that impacts education as during, during a shutdown, during a lockdown because of COVID. 
it impacts everything from our ability to, you know, to conduct trade and commerce on our territories. We are on the, look, we, ha we have deficiencies in electric power on our territories. And in some of our territories that have extractive industries, including taking oil and gas out of our territories, every year we hear another horror story of somebody who froze to death in a home that didn't have power, in a home that didn't have heat. Yeah, that's the reality. So I'm sorry if, if I'm coming across as, as a little um, pissed off over anybody begrudging Native people over this $31 billion. The fact that it got stuck in a stimulus package is, is again, a failure of American policy. It's a, fail, it's a failure of the Interior Department. It's a failure of, uh, you know, of the executive branch, the legislative branch, all of it. The Treasury Department. We're in a constant battle with the Treasury Department over them trying to figure out different ways to tax us. And even as we carve out some level of economic development on our territories, it is, it's a constant battle. <clears throat> even as we have some level of success pushing back against states, we have to fight at the federal level and the state level on everything from regulatory controls to, to taxation. It was during the Obama administration that they decided they were going to increase the excise tax on tobacco. And, and, and many people know that Native territories have developed some level of a tobacco economy. So when they, they rose, increased the, the federal excise tax, and, and I mean increased it significantly from like $3.40 a carton to, over, to $10 a carton on, on, a, on, a, on cigarettes. When they, when they increased that, they added in that, and, and they increased it to pay for, chil for, for children's health insurance. Not, to, not ours. And so they raised the federal excise tax across the board to help pay for the, uh, what they call CHIPRA, the children, Children's Health in, uh, Insurance Policy or Program Renewal Act or something like that, CHIPRA. <clears throat> they added a provision at the end called the floor tax. And what that floor tax did was it allowed the federal government to tax product that was already cleared at the old tax level, but had not fully entered the U.S. commerce stream yet. All of a sudden, Native territories started getting letters from the, the Treasury Department saying, well, we know that you have a store there, and that store has a certain amount of product on the shelf, so we're going to assess the increase in the federal excise tax for the product that's already sitting on your shelves that you already you know, bought and paid for, and we're going to um, we're going to consider that stock on the floor. And that's why they call it a floor tax. That was cleared at the old rate, but hasn't paid the new rate. We were getting some some places were getting bills sent to them for for fifty, sixty, a hundred, two hundred thousand. And and obviously we we don't just have retailers; we have wholesalers. So some of these wholesalers who had product cleared from the federal government now, you know, bought at the old rate, that was sitting on their floors that the, the federal government says, well, we're going to assess a floor tax for a million dollars against that. We had to fight the federal government over this thing. I was personally involved in that fight. But this, this is what we do battle with. On the few little carve-outs, gaming, for instance, we're in a constant battle 
Because of the failure of the Interior Department. Yeah, Deb Halland, I hope you're listening. Because of the failure of the Interior Department to hold overly aggressive states accountable for their actions. We have states like New York State, New Mexico, Oklahoma, that are trying to extort revenue out of gaming, and it's illegal. They're, they're, you know, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act pro, uh, prohibits states from taxing native, ter- uh, native gaming. But they say, oh, yeah, but we can squeeze them for revenue sharing. Well, if you're forcing us to give you revenue, that's not sharing. That's, that's extortion. That's taxation. And, and the Interior Department's look the other way. For, you know, yes, the, <laughs> from Bill Clinton on up, you know, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act's been a lot around for quite a number of years, over 30 years. So, yes, that includes the Obama-Biden administration. We have, we have this history, a legacy of abuse and oppression, not just from the past, but, but contemporarily. We are fighting states every single day. So, and I don't know exactly who pushed to have $31 billion included in this uh, the stimulus package. But I know where it comes from. It comes from at least a small acknowledgement about the gross underfunding that the United States has provided to fulfill its obligation. You know, we, we talk about health care. See, even that, the idea that, that the federal government has an obligation to provide health care, they've actually dumped much of, much of that onto the state through their Medicare and Medicaid systems. The federal government isn't providing the funding that they should be. In, in, in fact, they've tried to reduce it down to welfare, down to social services. They'll, they'll tell Native people, look, if you want to be serviced in a, in a clinic that the uh, Indian Health Services um, is providing some funding to, you need to apply for Medicare. Why? Well, because you qualify because of poverty. This is about our poverty. This isn't about whether we qualify for your safety net programs. This is an obligation that you're supposed to have. Your commitment to Native people when you were taking all this land was that you would provide health care, not run us through your, your social services program. This isn't safety net. This isn't charity. This is obligation. So, look, if you're, if you're hearing this and, and you've never heard this before, I, don't, I understand that. Look, we oftentimes, we oftentimes talk about how at the foundation of things like racism is ignorance. And, and I don't mean ignorance to insult somebody's intelligence. Ignorance isn't necessarily tied to intelligence. Ignorance oftentimes is tied to just not knowing, not having the information available to you. But there's also a different kind of ignorance. There's willful ignorance. And I think most racism is really tied to to willful ignorance, or at least the overt racism is. Because once you know, once you learn that something, you know, what what the truth is, you can either ignore it, which is willful ignorance, or you can act on it. But once you know better, you gotta do better. And and there's no denying that Native people, we were 100% of the population here on Turtle Island before white people came. 
That those numbers were were decimated. By some estimates, 95% of our population was eliminated. Why? Because of the land we occupied. And the very small pieces of land that we still occupy have been diminished so significantly, not just in size, but in quality of life because of U.S. policy. So shame on any of you who condemn $31 billion only now making it to native territories when you consider the gross level of underfunding that has come to native people over the years. And, and look, I understand the concern over reparations, especially the conversation associated with, with slavery. I, look, I, I get that, and I support reparations. But I understand that while there has not been a single piece of legislation that compensated black people for slavery, let's be honest. There have been, you know, grossly inadequate as they may be, there have been efforts, legislative changes, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, even some of the funding associated with the, with the stimulus package, which is, which is supposed to go to help black farmers. People say, yeah, but it's not just helping black farmers. It's helping anybody who's disadvantaged. Well, yeah, that's kind of the way the system works in the United States. The only people who, who have been able to be recognized as a distinct people that are due some level of, of special programming has been Native people. Why? Because we weren't part of your system. Many of us still don't regard ourselves as U.S. citizens. They didn't try to force U.S. citizenship on us until 1924. So we are a distinct people. We aren't necessarily Americans or U.S. citizens. And we aren't fighting for equal treatment within you know, the U.S. Constitution. Many of us are fighting for our distinction. And our ability to make our homes, as diminished as they are, livable. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio, Yahweh.